Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. I got a whole lot of questions for you. This kid's gonna test my will. I got a lot to learn, and my baby's too. Welcome to part two of the Facts About the Vax on the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Berlin, and I'm here with our co-hosts, Maria Bulin, and our guest pediatricians, Dr. Carly Wilbur and Dr. Jay Gordon, continuing our discussion about childhood vaccines. Can we talk about measles, mumps, and rubella individually, just about the diseases? Measles, I know you touched on it earlier, Dr. Gordon, but measles, uh, Measles, these are all, are these all viruses? Please. They're all viral. And so if you get sick with any of these, antibiotics aren't going to do you a whit of good. Okay. Is there any treatment for them? Supportive. Supportive. Certainly any secondary bacterial infections can be treated. But if you get really sick with any of these, you're going to be in a hospital setting. Okay. What's measles like when you get it? Measles. Um, can cause pneumonia, meningitis, uh, encephalopathy, encephalitis. These are uh, swelling and inflammation of the brain. It's best known for its most common symptoms, which are fever and rash. Most commonly get a fever and rash, but you, it can it can grow from more that. commonly than other viral illnesses. It can lead to these more invasive, dangerous, deadly symptoms. From one child to another, it's about ninety percent transferable. It is one of the spreads most like wildfire contagious viruses and that there's a quote that it's killed more children than any other disease in history here's here's your question though have you seen measles no i opened my office in 1984 we had an office meeting some months ago and we, we have got some staff who've been with me for most of those 30 some years i said they said have we ever had a case of measles in our office in 30 years i said nope and i got a practice with you know with a fair number of partially vaccinated kids. It's a, and it's a very rare illness. And the problem is that if you say that out loud, if you say measles is very rare, your chance, suddenly you can diminish the vaccine rate. You could hurt herd immunity. If somebody tries to scare you out of getting that vaccine, they could hurt herd immunity. Now, as we both know, herd immunity is not only rock solid where you practice, which is a, a, a very nice area very very nice uh they have a pretty dichotomous but you but you've got, but, but they're very well educated because they come to your practice in other words they're not they're they're getting a good education about diseases vaccines we spend and some time talking about it certainly. you spend time um the same for me 
I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of time in my office spent about preventive medicine and, and vaccines and so on. Um, but the, even with Andrew Wakefield's article and all the controversy, herd immunity is just, we've had, we've got the highest vaccination rates in history as far as I know. So in 2008, a patient who followed, who was actually a patient of Dr. Bob Sears, who followed his vaccine schedule, the alternate schedule, went to Switzerland and came back with measles and infected 11 other children, four of whom were too young to be vaccinated. So the herd immunity and that little microcosm, that story there, is really powerful. These kids were at risk. These are innocent children at risk who didn't even have an opportunity for their parents to start making those decisions. They were under a year. Right. So, so the, the risks involved in, in going into a pediatrician's office, let alone going into his office or my office, the risks are known. I mean, we, you know, there's no secret. There's no secret to the fact that, that people who come into your waiting room are pretty much at, at, at extreme, as the lowest possible risk for contracting pertussis or, or measles. I hope okay? so. And that when they come into my office, they're at, at higher risk. We take as many precautions as we can, but we, I acknowledge that we have people who do not have measles vaccines, who have traveled. But my response to the measles outbreak or to the 11 people was, you know what they all had? They had measles. Now, measles is no longer the, the punchline to a sitcom like it was in the 70s because we know that measles can be fatal uh, and so on and so forth. But it's measles. You know, the, nobody contracted meningitis at Disneyland or, or meningitis didn't spread because of Disneyland. Measles spread. But measles is, I won't say it's a benign viral illness because it's not, it's not a benign viral illness. But it is an almost always benign viral illness. So when you say it's when you say it's measles, you're saying I'm it's saying not the end of the world. It didn't belong on the front page of the New York Times. It didn't. It didn't. It should not have caused the panic that ensued. Like nothing I've it's ever a seen in my career. Preventable illness that we didn't see. You just said we haven't seen it. So all of a sudden now we're seeing it. But we didn't see it. You didn't see it. I didn't see it. We didn't see it. So you're they saying made, the news reports? I'm were saying false. they made it up. No, the news reports weren't false. We were a country of 330 million people, and there were 170 they cases. They blew it up. I mean, I once, I once studied the number of people, you don't have to study it, you got Google, who get <laughs> killed by tree limbs falling on their head each year, okay? It's, it's over 100 people every year, and you don't see tree limbs on the front page of the New York Times. They made up hysterical journalism. There should have been a calm discussion. They should have said, you know, this is a wake-up call. Measles is still here. If you don't want your child to get measles and you don't want your child's preschool to be at risk for measles, get the vaccine. Well, nice in Ohio, that's the, that's the rule. In Ohio, if you are unvaccinated and attending school and one of these illnesses, specifically measles and mumps, which were rampant in Ohio. So if you if your child is unvaccinated, you are out of school for two weeks from the right. last reported but, case. But that wasn't my point. My point was the journalism involved and the medical hysteria. It's with, fear-mongering. It's on both sides it's of the fear, point. It's fear, right. And I think that they're they're equally wrong. They're equally immoral and unethical. But the guys on that side, the fear mongers on the side of get this vaccine because measles could kill your child, uh, get respect. They get respect. That's not a false statement. Measles could kill your child. Right. But to make it sound like there was any significant likelihood, I mean, it, it, to, it, you know, 330 million is almost nicely divisible by 107. It's one out of two million or so. Okay, measles didn't really threaten your children. 
with or without vaccines? Because we you know that your child. We you, were at Disneyland. We go every December. We were there actually um, no, with when, with our you. children when when that went down. They they didn't get it. Um, but just as as it's unfair to say that it's that, that there isn't a risk. Also in the PI of MMR, it says that encephalitis is a risk as a side effect of the vaccine. So just, I've never seen that. Have you ever? It's seen in the that? PI. No, I believe that it is, and the I, lawyers so put that I, but, in there. But at the same Absolutely. time, I'm not going to get any respect as a parent who, again, who even asks a question or who even wants to know this information. That parent, those doctors get demonized as opposed to, as anti-science or as opposed to, but it, that's also science. It's in the product insert. People so, who choose not to vaccinate their children because they flip the coin or use the birth sign as a determinant deserve pretty harsh discussions pretty ser- put it this way they deserve very serious discussions okay and people who imply that there's a great risk there was a great risk in in the in early 2015 to your child i think deserve equal criticism but they didn't get it in other words it just snowballed everybody just jumped on that bandwagon i think what what's even one step and that worse is, is is the fear-mongering has people believing that if your child's friend doesn't get the measles vaccine, then your child is going to die or at great risk of uh, getting sick and dying. My titers had dropped. They, the hospital required, the hospital where I work required that we had our titers drawn for measles, mumps, not rubella, but measles and mumps during the outbreaks in Ohio. And mine had dropped. I'm fully immunized and they dropped. And so I had to get re-immunized. And, and, and so, one could I say, mean, you know, the risk changed. you could say it's, it's, uh, it's our choice. I mean, I, you know, the, the, every year they, they, they require that you get a, your hospital, I'm sure it's the same flu. policy. You yeah. either get a flu shot or you wear a mask. Okay. So those of us who don't want to wear a mask during patient contact get flu shots. Okay. And my answer to them is when I walk into a newborn intensive care unit, a pediatrician after an eight hour day in the office, we shouldn't right. be worried about influenza. You should wear a hazmat suit. <laughs> I should wear. I should be wearing. We should wear masks, not just when you're overtly ill as a pediatrician, but the, I mean those kids are at risk from me. Well, so measles is a good example of that. There, you are you're contagious way before, not way before, but you, a child with measles is contagious before the symptoms, the obvious symptoms. Occur. As they are with many viruses, mm-hmm. you're right. What does mumps look like? Uh, do you want to? Well, I've seen mumps. I had mumps. I've seen mumps. Mumps is a uh, is a, a swelling. It's it's also it's a, an inflammation of the parotid gland, one of the, the the salivary glands. It 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 is in the the cheek. I can't. I'm doing He's all showing of these. You. I'm showing <laughs> everything to people who are on, on the radio. It crosses, the video jawline. crosses the jawline. Mumps is 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 a little tricky to diagnose, but it it's not that hard to diagnose. It it obscures the angle of the jaw. It, it cross it crosses the 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 it behind the jaw and. And then uh, uh, you're pretty sick. Pretty Dangerous. Sick. Um, we had a big mumps outbreak. How many years ago? Six, seven years ago. It, it's where, yeah. Do you remember? There were um, eight thousand cases or something like that. And yes, so there were no fatalities, which I thought was interesting because it's a bad virus. There were no fatalities. Um, and they were in pockets. There was six thousand in Iowa in two thousand and six, and yeah. two thousand in New York in two thousand and nine. And it spread. It spread through. It, it spread throughout some. It's. It. It's it there was a big. It was the biggest measles. outbreak we've had. In well, because it's time. obvious when someone has mumps. Was it right. spreading through a vaccinated population or not? There was some. I, I believe that the majority of people. Listen, the, the 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 unfair discussion. People say, you know, the majority of people who got this disease were vaccinated. That's because the vast majority of people are vaccinated. Okay. In other words, it's not fair to say the majority of people who got pertussis 
were vaccinated against pertussis because virtually everybody in America is vaccinated against pertussis, 95% of people. So yes, vaccine failures are going to be highlighted. Waning immunity will be highlighted. But yeah, the vaccine, the, the, there's, no, there's no certainty. The, the, the mumps vaccine isn't 95% effective like the measles and rubella. It's right. less effective. It's, it's much less effective, well, and I don't even right. know why. So the, uh, but the, the risk you mentioned sterility, that's in, in men, boys? The, the, during during the during the the that outbreak, they had a chance for the first time in a long time to study a big outbreak. One out of twenty adolescent and adult males who got mumps during that outbreak had a unilateral orchitis, a one-sided nut ache from hell. Okay, um, there was a, a quote that I can't uh, that that came out. It was an official publication saying the discussion of sterility or the issue of sterility doesn't enter into this discussion. And sterility from mumps is extremely rare. But because, so because, because your testicle hurts so much, you, but it but it it can cause it can cause harm. Any virus, and these are nasty viruses, and these occurred in gigantic epidemics prior to the vaccine, forties, fifties, thirties, forties, fifties. When you have a gigantic outbreak of viruses, you can get encephalitis. It can spread to the brain. Mm-hmm. You can get encephalitis from 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 any virus. But because there were outbreaks of tens, hundred, millions of cases of measles or mumps or rubella, there was encephalitis. Were no you question. saying that it might affect the ovary? It can, it can, it, even more rarely than the testicle, than the but testicle. it can. And, and also because the ovaries stop functioning? It can. Is that also unilateral? Good question. I'll bet neither of us know. But the, uh, but the well, upshot was... We, we all have, yeah. I mean, most, yeah. most men have two and most women have two. Most, but, but the upshot was that studying this, this largest outbreak in some years, there, there, there were cases of encephalitis. I don't remember the numbers. But, the, but there were no fatalities, uh, well, but people who survive encephalitis can have deafness and they can have issues with um, mm-hmm. not just the brain, but there can be from mumps. You can have cardiac muscle uh, long lasting yes. effects and kidney effects. Did we agree earlier that rubella really is only a concern for pregnancy? Yes. Rubella used to be known as a more innocent disease than the common cold because it was just, it was just another childhood virus that, you know, that came and went. But if you were, if if a pregnant woman were exposed at a certain period of, during her pregnancy, you get fetal damage. Same thing is true of chickenpox. Only by the way. bring. I mean, in my mind, what strikes out to me is if I could separate them, and I was choosing risk benefit analysis for each of my individual children. It sounds like in my mind, I would, I would be more interested in giving rubella to the girls and maybe not right at birth, and uh, mumps to the boys. Again, and maybe. maybe measles to everyone if you wanted to, or maybe you believe that the measles vaccine uh, is a is a bad actor and it it it, it increases neurodevelopmental problems. But you got or at least you have a choice. The, uh, you used to have a choice of how you wanted to do it, and and that you know that is problematic for doctors. Why did we take away that choice? Why did we combine them? Nobody knows why. We got a letter. We all got a letter. I don't remember how many years ago from the manufacturer. I think because they could not prove a risk in all three being gotten together versus them individually. And it was easier to convince parents and it was cheaper to um, house a vaccine and give a vaccine. I mean, each time you give a vaccine, you need the alcohol swab and you need the needle and you need another needle to change it out from, and from drawing it up. And, and you need the, an office visit. Right. So to give, si- I don't know the numbers, it but probably to, was to, to give there six is vaccines versus involved. two vaccines. Well, it's a cost factor that's not just... You know, it's not a governmental cost factor. It's your insurance. It's my insurance. I mean, it comes out of our pockets. But it it comes at the cost of taking away that 
that choice. It, it, the was, ability to choose. it was a decision that wasn't well explained, but I think you're right that, that it was just you know the insurance companies didn't want issue. the insurance companies didn't want to pay for three office visits. I mean, there are probably still doctors who bill for an office visit every time someone comes in to get a vaccine. Our office doesn't do that. I'd love to have a, have these separate components of the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Because there's no question that a woman of childbearing age should have rubella immunity. Rubella is a disease which we eradicated from the United States in 2005. The CDC held a press conference in April of 2005, very proudly announcing that that that, that rubella was no longer a an American disease. The 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 fear of all pregnant women for, from fetal rubella syndrome was gone. Um, we now have imported rubella. Uh, 10, 15 cases a year, but we have no rubella living in the United States. Yet, I think about a woman who might be traveling to Europe for some reason in her 13th or 14th or 15th week of pregnancy, who could be exposed in countries in Europe, countries in South America to rubella. So I would love to have a rubella vaccine for that woman. Uh, mumps does not cause sterility very commonly in in adult or adolescent males but it you know it it, it people are worried about mumps mumps can can cause problems um, so Does whereas it, a, a young man doesn't need a rubella vaccine, except for herd immunity, which is another part of this incredibly complex discussion, um, some people used to because uh, I, I practiced for a long time when we had separate components, and then there were people who heard about what we used to call hard measles, which is measles now, the the, the Disneyland disease, <laughs> and they said I'm not worried about rubella. And I'm not really worried about mumps because it's, you know, I had mumps and my grandfather had mumps, whatever uh, experience they had wasn't severe. But they said, I don't really want my child to get hard measles. Okay, so I had a measles vaccine for you. And if it didn't take, I had another measles vaccine. I didn't have to give you the whole MMR over again. That vaccine, it's again a triple live virus vaccine. There yeah, are warnings um, against combining live virus vaccines in, in uh, I forgot if whether it's the pink book or the yellow book. Well, that's you know, with the varicella. That's combining the, the MMR, which is already combined with fever. the varicella. Yellow fever is what they talk about. They say that within a month of giving the yellow fever vaccine, don't give another live virus vaccine. And what they're worried about is competition because the immune system, boy, I'm going to try to simplify this for myself just so I don't. The immune system, when it sees more than one live virus vaccine, doesn't always respond evenly. And we found that out with the oral polio vaccine. The oral polio vaccine has three different polio viruses, type 1, type 2, type 3, wild polio virus. And until we got it balanced right, the immune system was responding to type 1 and type 3, but not to type 2. I might have that wrong, by the way. Maybe it was 1 and 2 and not 3. But it wasn't, the, the, the child wasn't getting full immunity against all three. So we had to put in more antigen for the type that wasn't getting the response. And it was a difficult balancing act. And to this very day, there are still some problems um, with the oral polio vaccine and the response to it. And with the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, um, the worry is, is competition. Are we going to get the best response? I, can't, I do a lot of, of uh, titers. I do a lot of blood tests to measure whether or not the antibody level is protective to see if a college kid needs a second MMR because I don't like to give it. Starting from the beginning, the MMR is 95% effective. 95% of people who get the first MMR have lifelong immunity to measles, mumps, and rubella. But the mumps component 
is not as good. And either it's because of competition from the fiercer measles and rubella component or just some other reason. So I do a lot of blood tests that show a negative mumps titer, negative, no protection against mumps. Well, you don't have a mumps booster. I don't have a mumps booster. I got to give another MMR, which bothers me because it's, it's unnecessary medicine. And, you know, I don't, I, I, the, the, the highest profile publication about vaccines in the past 20 or 30 years was Andy Wakefield's Lancet article about uh, 12 children who were found to have uh, autism-like disease and measles uh, uh, virus in the intestine. And, uh, and it was, you know, the, 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 the joke, and I don't want to throw Dr. Wakefield completely under the bus. He's been under the bus a lot. But the joke was it was a study that had more authors than children. It had 13 <laughs> authors and 12 children. Whether or not you deserve a letter to the editor of Lancet, uh, dear Lancet, I just saw these 12 kids. This is interesting. We should study 5,000 more children. But it certainly didn't deserve a five or six or seven page article in the major medical journal in the world. I mean, it was a bowling pin set up to be knocked down. Okay. So we haven't proven by any means that the MMR causes autism. We also haven't proven, by the way, that, 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 that it doesn't contribute to the, the, the incidence of autism because you can't prove a negative. You know, I can't prove that being here tonight eating peanuts doesn't cause some problems. You can't prove a negative. But to have that out there on the table and to try to make that a pillar of the, the movement, not anti-vaccine or pro-vaccine, but the movement for those of us who feel that the schedule isn't right and we don't vaccinate well, is just is, is awful reasoning. It, it, you could call it a straw man. What an easy thing to knock down. I never based any of my decisions about vaccines starting from 1980 onwards uh, on, on Andrew Wakefield's on MMR children? article. What? On those 12 children? No. And, and, no, and nobody should. Those 12 children who came from a GI clinic who are already, it was a very biased study. It was done in 1998, and in uh, 2004, a journalist discovered that um, Mr. Wakefield, not, no longer Dr. Wakefield because he was stripped of his medical license as a result of this, um, but it was discovered that a lawyer had paid him off, a lawyer who was already um, planning to sue the vaccine companies. In 2010, The Lancet even retracted the article entirely, and the the conclusion of the article was, quote, we did not prove an association between measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and the syndrome described. More research is needed. But even the suggestion of an association resulted in a panic that has done a lot of damage. But the thing is that they really, in the article, he, ad he admitted it. He said, I, this, I didn't prove anything, but he was held up. I mean, he, did, he said that. I didn't prove anything. He was held up as being the guy who proved that, that the MMR causes autism. He never claimed that. Um, the Lancet never should have published it. Uh, it shouldn't be the basis for any. It should be the basis for, for, for a discussion about research, the need for research. But you know, well, it, it, it's a shame that, uh... that, that, that because that's so easy to knock down, people keep bringing it up. We are going to take a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered 
Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. And and I think damage has been done also on the side of parents because it really heightened the polarity between anti-vaxxers, people pro, and negative. And I think people also throw all parents under the bus um, who raise questions as being part of that study. Oh, you just have no idea. You don't care about science. Where, in fact, we are told to care about how much sugar or we are told how much magnesium on, is on the facts of the food that we give our children. But we're not supposed to care about fetal um, tissues, cow parts, animal parts, and vaccines, or uh, aluminum, or like we're not supposed to care about that at all, like mercury. So I feel like me even wanting to know these things and ask some questions. Sometimes I feel myself and other parents have been demonized just by wanting to know what's inside and researching it. So I think there's been damage done to, to parents as well um, by that study because you're put into this you know crazy parent um, category for, for asking some questions and wanting to know and, and being and, and caring about what's inside. And, and so just like fi Facebook lit up, uh, you know, recently about vaccines and, and people are so smug about um, how it's science or anti-science. But I think, uh, as you've uh, said, Dr. Berlin, the parents want to know. And uh, it doesn't That's why mean... we're here. Yeah. <laughs> you, wanted, you wanted so badly just to enumerate the vaccines and discuss yeah, each other. Uh, it's, it's okay. I, I mean, it's an important did. conversation. Look, I think we're... I, it seems to me like we're all in agreement that uh, Andrew Wakefield's research could be uh, thrown out the window and that there's no... Well, I won't throw it out the window. You're not going to throw it out the I'm window. I'm not throwing it out the window. Because he's only what half I'm under your bus. What I'm saying is that it, it's not what people claim it is. The people who are very much opposed to the MMR as being the devil are wrong. It's not. He didn't prove anything. It, it, he didn't prove that it caused autism. But the people who say, well, now because... Andy Wakefield has been has has been stripped of his license, and the the article was retracted, and it became clear that he had a conflict of interest. Uh, we've proven that you know, we haven't proven anything there either. And in terms of conflict of interest, you know, some of my favorite infectious disease doctors, Paul Offit, um, has profited greatly and continues to from vaccinations. James Cherry. Well, but wait just one second, because yes. Dr. Sears has profited greatly from his book as well. Does that No, I know, that I know Bob Sears. You don't make much money. The difference between a book and a... You don't make much money. How much money you make in a book and how much money you make in a vaccine. I have a conflict of interest. Let me tell you that, 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 uh, that a, a lot of the reason that people come to see me is because they know I'm flexible about vaccines. They know that I really do believe that vaccines can contribute to harm. So when I speak out and I get publicity, that I have a conflict of interest. I, but, but my objection is to the non-disclosure 
I mean, James Cherry, who was the head of ID, infectious disease at UCLA, accepted millions of dollars, both for testifying and for research. But this is how research gets done, and this is how experts are paid to testify. But, but say it, and certainly Dr. Wakefield should have said, should have disclosed like crazy, I am receiving three or four hundred thousand pounds as, par, as for expert, for, as a consultant or as an expert witness. And for that, I have nothing but criticism for him and for Jim Cherry and for Paul Offit and for a lot of other people who do this sort of thing. Well, throwing okay? them out the window uh, was probably an overstatement. I, my point is he's number one, not here to defend himself. And number two is I don't think any of us are placing any of our our decision-making on his research. So based on that, that's what I meant by throwing him out the window. Nor, nor do you decide, Dr. Wilbur, to give the vaccine because we've, uh, because Dr. Wakefield's research was not good enough. I mean, that's not when you said, gee, I think doesn't I'll give more MMRs. It doesn't, no. doesn't well, enter that's my into point. our no. thinking. None but of us in, are making decisions right. based on that particular... In Denmark, they did a study where um, children who had gotten the MMR and children who had not gotten the MMR were compared and the rates of autism were equal. And in Japan, they changed to separate MM and R, measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines, and they found that autism rates actually increased. And then there was a study in June of 2000 14 that was a meta-analysis of case control and, and cohort studies and uh, over 1.3 million children were studied and they found there was no connection between MMR and autism, there was no connection between thimerosal and autism, there was no connection between mercury and autism and there was no connection between getting multiple vaccines and autism. That's a mouthful. Wasn't it though? Yeah, it was a... Uh, <clears throat> so, but we're in agreement that there's no there's no hotline connection between MMR and autism. No, we're not in agreement. We're not in agreement on that. And Let's, I'll tell you my problem. Yes. It's confirmation bias. I have sat with a hundred families closer than you and I are sitting today. That's pretty close. Mm -hmm. And they have said they didn't come in. They came in for a second or third opinion and they didn't come in to discuss what happened. They said, we know what happened. They said, here, we have our video. Look at our phone. Here he is at six months of age. Here he is at nine months of age. Here he is at 12 months of age at his birthday party. And here he is four hours after he received the MMR. Now, I've seen 100 families. During that time, we've probably given, I don't know, 100 million or more MMRs. So for me to try to scare someone out of getting the MMR, because I have sat with families who feel very strongly that there's a connection, is wrong. Okay, that's wrong. What, I, what I'm saying is I will not, I, I cannot possibly toss out, I can't toss out the possibility that vaccines, the biggest thing I do in my office, the biggest thing I do in my career is vaccinate. Amoxicillin is nothing. Decongestants are nothing. Tonsillectomy is nothing. I don't do them in my office. But when I give a, a vaccine, I'm changing the immune system forever. Most people, most experts, 90-some percent of pediatricians would argue that the immune system has been changed for the better forever. I would say that there's nothing free, okay? There are side effects. There are some we know. There's, everybody, every doctor acknowledges that there's a small subgroup of children, whether it has to do with kids who have mitochondrial disorders or some other genetic susceptibility. There's a small group of children who suffer severe vaccination side effects, okay? It's a small group. Uh, is it severe vaccination side effects? You're, you're taking something that's, that's, 
connected temporally. So there's a connection in time. The child was normal, then the child got the MMR, and now the child's behaving abnormally. And you're assuming a causal relationship there. And the studies have not supported that assumption. But the but the vaccine court has validated this. In other words, they've awarded money saying he was okay, he had the vaccine, he had seizures. You are correct that we've never done sufficient studies to prove that there's a connection between vaccines and autism, vaccines and seizures, vaccines and sudden infant death syndrome. That study has never been done. It will never be done. And for that reason, the scare tactics on that side of the issue are wrong. They're wrong. Okay? But I like the idea of discussions with each individual parent about which vaccines should be given and when. And I think that the, that parents are intelligent enough and discerning enough and caring enough to have those discussions. I think that when most parents are presented with the facts, they choose to vaccinate. They may not choose to give six at a time. They may not choose to start at, at three hours or six weeks of age, but I think that parents will vaccinate. Most of the families in my practice have received, very few of the families in my practice have received zero vaccines. I have parents who, who have decided that they don't want any vaccines. And I've said the same thing that Bob Sears has said, that in the 21st century, an American child is safe with no vaccines. Okay, acknowledge the risk that your child could get whooping cough. Acknowledge the risk that when you travel, there are, there are illnesses you could contract. But the risk is very, very small to a healthy American child. If everybody felt that way, we'd have problems. If that spread globally, we would have huge problems. But if one parent sits face to face with me, having made an appointment to sit and talk with me for an hour about this, I would say, you, you're, you're okay not to vaccinate. So but, how many patients, after a day like that, how many patients will you draw the line until you've, you're chipping away at the herd immunity? Well, I don't think that I can chip away at herd immunity. In the mind of the parents who come and talk to you about vaccines being invasive and hurting their child, is it less invasive to spend weeks in the ICU? Oh, no, it's awful. My feeling is that the way we vaccinate and the way we push parents to vaccinate and the way we present vaccines is pushing some people away. In other words, it's not going to push the majority of your patients away. As a matter of fact, it may push none of your patients away because you take the time and the energy. But I've seen so many people kicked out of pediatric practices for not vaccinating, or actually I shouldn't say that, for, not, for wanting to have a discussion of vaccinating, or for wanting to know if their child really needs a polio vaccine now to go along with the DPT, the Hib, the rotavirus, the hepatitis B, and the Prevnar vaccine. And we both know the story of the Prevnar vaccine. We are going to take a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Pneumococcus is a bacterium that lives in your sinuses. There are, what, about 100 strains of pneumococcus. And there, was, there are some dangerous strains. They can cause not just sinus infections, but ear infections. They can cause not just sinus and ear infections. They can cause meningitis. We invented a Prevnar with seven different strains in it. Within two years, those strains had been completely replaced. This is a quote. I, I wish I could quote the uh, pediatric news front page. They had been completely replaced by seven new predominant strains. So rather than saying, boy, instead of, of in, uh, inventing, we're not going to be pneumococcus with a vaccine, tell people to wash their hands, get a good night's sleep, and eat a healthy diet, we invented the Prevnar 13. 
with 13 different strains. Well, as one could expect, those 13 strains have been replaced in the sinuses and in the middle ear with, with different strains, uh, including a couple of more dangerous strains. So now we're on the verge of, of releasing, I believe it's the Prevnar 24 or whatever it is. 20, there's a 23 already. And, and it, we're not going to beat pneumococcus. We're not going to beat pertussis with the vaccine we have now. We're not going to beat influenza by trying to convince people that we have a great flu shot. Okay, we're just not going to do it. We, we, need, we need sincere, we need research and development. We need, we need people understanding that our vaccines are, are not good enough. We need, we need much more uh, honesty presented to our patients. Uh, the pneumococcal disease is a bacteria? It's a bacteria. So when you say 71323, we're, we're talking about mutations of that bacteria? Different strains, strains. different, different strains. strains. Just as there are a hundred different strains of Streptococcus that can that you can get, there there are a hundred different strains of pneumococcus, and it causes infe- ear infections. Most commonly, it causes infections. ear infections and sinus infections. But uh, as as recently as as uh, 1979, I saw a case of pneumococcal meningitis. In bacteremia, you can get sick in the blood. You can have germ floating. But the, in the interesting blood. thing is that after we left our residencies, which in my case was a thousand years ago, and in your case, how long ago did you leave your residency? About a decade and a half. Okay, I, and I and I and I, I certainly won't ask this question in any kind of smug way to say, "Have you ever seen a case of pneumococcal meningitis since residency?" Because uh, I know I haven't, and you haven't either. I haven't. You either. haven't. Okay, I could have asked smugly. I have to be. That's okay. <laughs> I'll have to be more <laughs> smug next time. But but the, but the fact is that when you're in residency, you're at this the end of a funnel. Right. And, and, you, and all of a sudden, it, it seems like every child seems to have, every third child has meningitis. When you get out into the real world, you realize you're dealing with illnesses of extreme rarity, extreme severity. Boy, let me tell you, pneumococcus is, pneumococcal meningitis is no less severe in an office than it is in an emergency room. But the illnesses are so rare that you must give an honest sales pitch to patients. You must say to them, the reason that I want to give you the Prevnar vaccine is that in my opinion, the side effects are either zero or none, a zero or very small. The benefits may also be very small because that disease is so rare. One of the reasons the disease is rare because of the vaccine. That's a nice circular discussion. But I still think that it might be worth it for your child to get this vaccine. Uh, some doctors state it very differently. They say, you, you get this vaccine or you're not allowed in my practice, period. You get this vaccine or you're putting your child at risk of meningitis. How great is the risk? Minuscule. So be honest and tell people we're doing this for herd immunity. We're telling this to protect your child from ear infections because you can prevent some ear infections with the, the Prevnar vaccine. But the way that we're doing it now is... But the meningitis, while the risk is small, it's huge. Almost 30% of these kids will die if they're lucky enough to survive. They have hearing loss, brain damage, blindness, learning right. disabilities. I mean, well, it's not nothing. The, it's the, it, oh, no, no. It's not nothing. But you have to get it first. Right. And you've been doing this for 15 years. I've been doing it for 36 years. And we haven't seen it in our offices. And the reason is that it's extremely rare because the or incidence... the reason is that my, my kids are vaccinated. Well, but the, but the, um, I mean, but, talk about but circular but that, reasoning. But, but prior to that, because I was in practice prior to the HIV vaccine 
being in, in, being out. And I saw meningitis my first few years in practice because the Hib vaccine came into usage, I believe, in my I don't know fourth or fifth year in private practice. But 1980s. and the Prevnar vaccine, uh, do you know the date on it? I don't know the date that we started using that vaccine. Uh, the PCV seven, the Prevnar seven, was out in two thousand and one, and the Prevnar thirteen in two thousand and ten. Yeah. And between nineteen eighty and two thousand one, I saw no cases of pneumococcal meningitis in my office in twenty one years, and. It, it's not magic. It had to do with my taking care of a group of healthy people who, you know, who washed their hands and so on and so forth. So the, 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 the blanket again, and I keep coming back to, to being, uh, more cr- uh, critical of the anti-vaccine movement. It's, there's no magic here. The reason we don't have measles in the United States or the reason that 170 cases can make the New York Times for months on end is because the vaccine works great. The reason that we don't have polio is the same reason. The reason that pneumococcus doesn't threaten is because it was always a very rare disease, and now we've made it a much more, much rarer disease. So the discussion is so complex that it drives me crazy when people divide it, dichotomize it into either pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. Just to close up on the pneumococcal conjugate, which is the Prevnar, Mm -hmm. um, it it is basically a bacteria. It lives in the in the respiratory, respiratory tract. tract and if you get it if you succumb to it then uh normally you would just get what well, looks like a cold a fever cold. upper respiratory symptoms moist juicy but occasionally if you miss it and you don't treat it at that point it Ear could infections pneumonia what well, yeah it could it could spread to something much more serious yes pneumonia meningitis bacterial infection of the blood it's not so much that it could spread as it it, is it by coincidence instead of landing in your middle ear it could land in your meninges in the lining around the spinal cord or it could somehow enter your bloodstream now when a bacteria enters your bloodstream which happens every time you brush your teeth the immune system does pretty good surveillance but if you are immunocompromised if you if just terrible coincidence you know, there are people who get very bad leg wounds and nothing happens. They put some Neosporin on there and they wash it and they're okay. Other people get leg wounds that turn into... Amputations. Danger- yeah, <laughs> amputations, death. So a lot, of these are, are, a lot of these incredibly rare diseases are just the worst of coincidences. What about Haemophilus influenza? I know we, we mentioned it briefly in passing. Um, what is it? It's a bacteria... Just used to be the most common cause of childhood meningitis in the 60s, 70s, and even into the early 80s. And then we invented the vaccine, and it became an incredibly uncommon cause of so-called invasive disease, dangerous illness. It is now a very, very rare uh, bacterial. and It's very rare for that to become a, a dangerous bacterial infection. You can get a sore throat from Haemophilus. Ear, nose, and throat docs are, are fond of sticking a Q-tip up your nose, culturing the boogers, and telling you that you have hemophilus. Because of the vaccine? No, because it, it, it's there all the time, and they put it on a culture plate. No, I, I, what I'm trying to understand is how did it go from causing meningitis to not causing meningitis? Because we vaccinated How did it go from causing meningitis to not causing meningitis? Well, it never, it never caused a lot of meningitis. It was the most common cause of meningitis, but meningitis is extremely rare, unless you're at that end of the funnel in residency. Um, but it, we, it, we diminished it. It was a godsend. Let me tell you, there wasn't a pediatrician in the world who complained about the invention of the, of the HIV vaccine. We all were really happy to no longer have to so once, worry about once that. Once you have that vaccine, if you are exposed to that bacteria, 
your body fights it off, no yeah. meningitis. The the bacteria is 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 not necess- is not unique, but it's one of the bacteria that has a a fatty coating. So during the first twelve months or so of life, some people say the first twenty four months, the immune system doesn't penetrate that fatty coat. So even though it's really a, a not the worst of bacteria, it's a bacteria the immune system has trouble dealing with during early infancy. So does that infancy. mean unvaccinated children after one year? Or even older, or not. We stopped giving that vaccine at a certain age, and I don't five. remember when. You age can't give five. it over five, yeah. Yeah, we don't give, and and I, I stopped giving that vaccine much earlier than that because. And, but you're not I, at risk anymore. You're you're at extraordinarily your small risk. Your, your body has a better risk. natural immunity but, to it. But if somebody wants me, a lot of people ask me to prioritize vaccines. Which one? If we only want to get one, which should we get? If or what should we get after we've had the three DTAPs? And my list is DTAP, Prevnar, Hib. Okay, because those I regard as being real illnesses. Um, I regard the vaccines as being, uh, while not completely harmless, nothing I do is harmless. And again, that includes acetaminophen, Tylenol. Uh, I think that they have a, 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 there's very little risk. And with that, let's take a break to absorb all this information. I invite our guests, Dr. Wilbur and Dr. Gordon, and our listeners to join us for part three of the Facts About the Vax on the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Berlin. Please visit informedpregnancy.com for show notes with valuable information, references, and resources pertaining to this podcast. And as always, write to info at informedpregnancy.com with questions or comments. I got a whole lot of questions for you. This kid's gonna test my will. I got a lot to learn and my baby's too. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. <laughs> 